Welcome to SRG Offscript, the podcast where experts at Succession Resource Group unpack the latest industry trends, recommendations, and observations for independent advisors managing their practice. No fluff and a little entertainment. In each episode, we'll discuss ways in which you can understand and leverage the value of your business, grow your business through M&A, but also through an optimized organizational structure, improve and protect your business to create a sustainable enterprise that can hopefully outlast you, and lastly, preparing for your eventual retirement and how to maximize that result. So we encourage you to listen in with whatever beverage suits your preference, and let's get to the forefront of industry trends with a fresh perspective to help you achieve your business goals. There may be something comforting about selling your practice to someone you know, someone already working with you. But what makes that a better option than selling to a third party? I'm Patrice Sikora with David Grau. Now, David, where should an advisor founder start their search for an answer to that question? It, it is quite the conundrum. And I would say in the seat I sit in, Patrice, it, it is, you know, start with the end in mind. People have heard me say that before. They will hear me say it again. But what I mean more figuratively is starting with the end of mind, what is it we're trying to actually build? You know, are we trying to build an enterprise, an empire, you know, that's going to someday outlast you? Okay, well, then it's going to be a little bit different answer on do we think internal versus external, as opposed to the advisor who wants to build a lean, mean lifestyle business. I don't want partners. I don't want complexity. Like I want a minimal level of staff to support me and my clients. And I want to be able to run this thing on a shoestring budget and not have a lot of stress. Like it's going to depend entirely on what type of business it is that you're looking to build. So if we're going the enterprise route, like I'm trying to build an actual business, you know, mm -hmm. quotes around that one, you know, that that's about building your farm team of talent. Like we, we need more people. It's kind of a human capital intensive business, you know, our professional service businesses. Then if we're building our farm team of talent, i.e. like we start as chief cook and dishwasher, all of us, and then eventually you get to a point where you've had enough success that when the phone rings, you can pay somebody else to answer it. So you can keep prospecting and taking care of current clients. And then eventually you get good enough doing all those things, having the phone answered that you hire a younger junior version of yourself and you have them job shadow. Like you build this farm team of talent where eventually your replacement is training their replacement. As you build these enterprises, well, then kind of almost by default to keep that talent, you end up having to start like leveraging your equity, phantom equity, real equity. And for a lot of these bigger teams that are growing, like without even intentionally thinking about succession, They've already set themselves on a path to have success with internal succession. And that's a pretty cool thing to see, but it doesn't always happen by default. Sometimes we need to sort of get unstuck and figure out, all right, well, we've lost a couple good people. How do we make sure this doesn't happen again? So that to me, it kind of all comes back to succession planning because it's the only way really to create sustainable growth in any organization. You've started on the path to internal planning, to internal succession with offering equity, as you, as you say. Does it ever happen that this is going along very well, you're not really thinking about it, and then suddenly you say, but I don't think these people can do this, and I think I need to look outside? <laughs> well, I'd love to say that that never happens, but 
Sadly, Patrice, we do actually hear that sentiment a lot. You know, why would I sell to my internal people? How would they afford to buy me out? They're not ready. They, they comment that they're not ready. I mean, I, I get it. I mean, think about all of you sitting here listening to me, whether you're on the treadmill, you're in the car. I hope you're listening to me at 1x speed because I'm notorious for doing this, Patrice, <laughs> where I listen to everybody at one and a half or 2x. Once this thing dropped, I went and listened to myself at 2x. It's not pretty. So keep me at one, maybe 1.2 if you would, folks listening. But when you as listeners think my next gen people aren't ready yet, well, no shit. You weren't ready when you started mm -hmm. your business. I wasn't ready when I started. None of us were. If we waited to get ready before we launched the business, you'd never do it. But you figure it out. I mean, over time, and, and the next gen is no different. They will figure it out. And frankly, What's that old saying, you know, what got you here won't get you there. They don't necessarily need the skills that you had. You had to have a whole lot of very diverse skills to get your business from nothing to where it is today. But to get it from where it is today to double and triple in size again, that you can expect to be a different skill set anyway. So two-part answer, first part I already gave you, they're not ready. Well, no kidding. Until they're owners, how would they be, honestly? Two, if they're not ready... That's our fault, like as founders. If our next gen people aren't even close to being ready, then that's our shortcoming. Like we need to be doing a better job of training and mentoring and role development and career tracking. Like, I mean, as lame a subject matter as that is, it's not the most sexy or exciting part of succession planning. It really is is mission critical. Like, even if you build this really cool, robust career path, like we do, I mean, frankly, for ourselves, but also for clients. A lot of times early on, you might have 25 different positions on this career chart. There's only six people in your whole team, and it's all six names showing up you know, over and over again on the career chart. But then you know as you double in size, it's not going to be the same six names used over and over again. We're going to add two or three names. Where do we put them? What would we hire for? Like That to me, so that career tracking, that mentoring and training and acknowledging that we're going to grow, we're going to end up with more specialization. Like, How do we get more intentional about it? That's how you get around the, my next gen's not ready issue. Get them ready. What are some of the other challenges that you see again and again? Yeah, I mean, the, the they're not ready sentiment. Oh, I mean, in some cases, it's a legit challenge. Like, they're not ready. Mm -hmm. But again, that's not entirely on them. So other challenges we see, I mean, long-term vision for me, I think is probably the biggest challenge that I see consistently. And I'm saying long-term vision as in like, how does the organization create sustainable growth for the next 10, 20, 30 years? Like, well, the biggest challenge that I see then is people not having an answer to that. They're more focused on, well, I my business is having success. We're doing well. I don't want to give up control. I don't necessarily want partners making decisions. I don't want to share the profits and the bookkeeping. So I think the biggest challenges we see initially is just, lack of that long-term vision, like acknowledging want it or not, you need it. And then probably second is affordability. And it kind of goes back to that last question you asked on like, well, they're not ready. Well, part of the they're not ready is they can't afford to buy the equity. But again, a lot of that goes back to that is not their problem. Like we as owners, founders need to be creating the career tracks and the path to partnership and how they afford that path to the partnership. Like, if we're proactive with it and we create the strategy, we can solve the affordability issue. What I can't solve for is a call I had this morning where 
they're precariously close to like a major partner founder wanting to retire and they don't have enough gen two, gen three folks on the team that want to afford to buy that person out, i.e. they've just waited too long. So as long as we don't wait and keep kind of kicking the can down the road, you can solve the affordability issue with proactive planning. But affordability does come up a lot where we just start trying to do a lot with one income stream. I can see this being a real hard change in mindset, though, for a founder who's, as you say, has been focused, had a numerous different kinds of bottle washer jobs that they had to do to get the company going and going. And then suddenly to sit down and have to take a long-term view rather than day-to-day, let's make sure we make payroll, let's make sure we do this. How do you help them do that? It's not easy, but then it gets back to, well, let's look at the future state. What if we had you in a position where like right now, owner, founder, you've got you know 100% or close to 100%, whatever it might be for each of you listening. You've got 100%. So you get all the credit, you get all the blame, you know, you get all the profits. <laughs> but what if we could get you to a position someday in this mythical land where you were only a 20% owner and they immediately cringe? Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, stay with me. We'll get you down to a 20% ownership stake. You're working 10 or 15 hours per week. You're making what you make now, working 10 or 15 hours per week. The profits you collect on your 15 or 20% ownership are the same or more than what you make now being the 100% owner. And the value of your 15 or 20% is worth more than what you have now having 100%. So, oh, that's impossible. And then we take their current team, we do some projections, conservative projections, mind you. Like again, the nice thing is for all of you listening, I mean, especially as investment advisors, your businesses are kind of built to grow. Like long-term, even if you don't focus on organic or inorganic growth, just general appreciation of the markets over a 10 or 20 year period, like your business is going to go up. So if you combine that with a little bit of organic growth, sprinkle the occasional inorganic growth opportunity, recruiting or an acquisition on top of it. And you get to a point where when we run these numbers conservatively out, it's not impossible. We just need to be proactive with it and start realizing that, you know what? Equity can actually be can be a tool that we start using. It doesn't just always have to be compensation that we use to keep our people and attract new people. And at least for now, and I would suspect probably for the next you know five or 10 years, if you all listening start to use phantom equity or synthetic equity, if you're an S-corp, or even some version of real equity, there's lots of different layers to that one too we can help you set up. If you start thinking about those as tools in your compensation toolbox, you're going to be maybe not bleeding edge anymore, which isn't probably where you want to be anyway, but it'll put you pretty cutting edge. And I think we all know how small a big industry it really is. Like word gets around really quickly when you're doing cool stuff like that. And people have an actual like career path and a base salary and a chance to become a partner, like stuff that people had at CPA firms and law firms for decades and decades. We can do that here too. And so that for me is ultimately how we get somebody on board is just flip the script. Like how do we get succession planning more about growing than it is about going? That's more compelling in an industry where people love what they do. And here you're rather hinting at valuation. Yeah. But is the the valuation the same for a sale internally? 
Mm, you'd love for it to be like bifurcating and comparing internal succession to a sale to, let's say, a third party or an industry aggregator, you know, which is all the rage in terms of conversations as of late. But the short answer is no. The, the actual value might academically end up being the same, but it'd be by pure happenstance. It's more about making sure we use the right methodology and framework when you're looking at this. Because again, a sale to a third party it's a consolidation event. Like if they're big enough firms, there may not be a lot of consolidation, but there's still some consolidation. We're taking two businesses and making them into one. Internal succession planning, we're kind of going the opposite way. <laughs> we're taking one income stream that currently does everything. It pays for the staff. It generates profits for the partners. And now we're going to use it to try to fund a buyout of an existing partner, bringing in a new one. So the short answer is on the valuation for internal succession planning in particular, we need to be shifting our thought from looking at the revenue that this business can produce to thinking about the profits that this business can produce and basically leaving those profits intact. Like even when we have a really large firm or we're doing an income-based valuation, there's a lot of normalization oftentimes that happens to kind of get things to where it should be and normalize it. Internal succession plan, that does not matter. This is the structure. This is what we're buying into. It could be, that could be a great thing. That could be a terrible thing. It is what it is because we're really looking at kind of like the investment value. And so it's a different methodology. It might end up producing the same result, but oftentimes depending on like how efficiently run that firm is, there might be a little bit of a difference. And so it really, really matters because we've had some folks who had valuations done by competitors and not that they did anything wrong in the valuation, but the assumption for the value that they did was not appropriate for succession planning. They were assuming a third-party sale. Well, that's interesting, but when we take that valuation, we plug it into the internal succession plan based on the firm's profits, sometimes you look at it and you think, well, you'd have to get paid on like a 50-year promissory note that's seller financed to make this thing cash flow. Like That doesn't work. Well, it doesn't work because we have the wrong tool for the job in this case. Interesting. Interesting. All right. And you're talking about, you know, promissory notes. How does the next gen afford to get into this? Yeah. How do they afford it? Well, I mean, because the one thing that I think everybody's internal team has in common is they don't have any money. <laughs> so, <laughs> true. I mean, I don't care if they're sons or daughters, key team members, 55-year-old executives that have been with you for 15 years. Like, even if you have increased their pay, you know, year over year, they have bonuses. In reality, most people adjust their lifestyle gradually to their current compensation level. So that money is probably already accounted for, if not by them, by their spouse, their family, retirement accounts, deferred comp, you name it, it's gone. So then how else do they afford to buy in? There are, I mean, there's really two different ways. Number one is using the industry financing that is available now, which is pretty cool. Like that was not a resource. Even when bank financing became a resource in our industry, it was not for internal succession planning. Like the banks were already kind of leery about lending advisors money where there really wasn't a lot in the way of collateral. Like they're not going to go take your RAA back or your practice back and start running it. Like that's not what the bank wants. They want you to be successful with it. They don't want that business. So then the idea of then also lending money to a minority buyer, 
buying into one of these businesses, like they were a total non-starter. And so for the longest time, we were left with seller or company financing or everything. Like that was plan A and plan B. And when I say seller financing, just so you, everyone's picking up what I'm laying down, I mean, I have 100% ownership and 100% of the profits day one. I let Patrice buy in because she's an amazing team member. She buys in 10% of the company. Well, how does she afford to pay for it? Well, she now gets 10% of the profits. She takes her 10% of the profits, pays her taxes, and uses the post-tax dollars to service the promissory note. So she pays me once a month, once a quarter, usually once a quarter, kind of tracking with how profits mm -hmm. are distributed. So that model can't not work. But it can't not work because, said another way, I basically just have my money back, just less of it. Right. Which is, I mean, that's, I think it's a big part of why we didn't see people really like engaging with succession planning for a long time, even when they acknowledged that, okay, yeah, from a long-term viability perspective, I'm going to need to do something. But in the meantime, when your solution is I give them my money and then they give it back to me, that is a terrible idea. The IRS loves that plan and therefore I have no interest in it. So that was plan A and B for a very, very long time. We now call it profit recycling. It stays plan B. Plan A, frankly, is either we have a really cool phantom equity strategy that we've been using you know, for a couple of years now, and it, it makes it so that they can afford it and that we don't have to worry about that as an immediate issue. They can start to accrue some phantom equity in the meantime, which then enables the final buyout to happen so much easier. Or we're doing leverage buyouts where we're actually using the industry financing that is available now for succession planning purposes. Turns out the banks do kind of like these minority purchases. They'll have the entire company sign on as collateral, but now the next-gen person gets 10 years to pay the bank back with. For most of these firms and how profitable they are, Gen 2 does not need 10 years to pay off their loans, but it's really nice to have it. The banks that have agreed to do this or to step up, are they the bigger banks, the regional banks, community banks? Yeah, they, they do tend to be the, I won't say bigger banks, but I mean, they're certainly regional, if not national. There's not a lot of them, you know, that can do this kind of internal succession financing. And frankly, even those that can, how they go about doing it and who's kind of like the optimized client for them will vary a little bit, even between the two most common ones that we see used. But bottom line is they are willing to do it. They have been doing it. They've had a lot of success with it. And it's funny where it went from being a non-starter with these banks 10 years ago. Now it's viewed as, I don't want to say riskless, but an almost riskless hmm. transaction because really nothing changes. We just have somebody who was pretty motivated before, now as a partner and gets a share of the profits and owes a million dollars to somebody, now they're super motivated. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so the bank's actually shifted from not doing these things at all, and I mean, not wanting to be close to these things, to now it's some of their favorite transactions. All right. Now, you mentioned the IRS and taxes. Let's talk about mm -hmm. the differences between how an internal succession is taxed versus a sale to a third party. Yeah, so... The sale to a third party, generally speaking, is, I don't say easy because it's still taxes, but it's a pretty standardized starting place. Like we can assume for the seller selling his or her book of business 
they're going to get 90 to 95% of the proceeds taxed as long-term capital gains. That's great. Buyer, in turn, can then amortize that over 15 years usually. And then there's you know some small token amount like consulting and a non-compete. That they're all, it's all taxed a little bit differently. But bottom line is for the seller, it's capital gains. For the buyer, they can basically write the whole thing off over that 10-year period they're paying the bank back. You flip to internal and you might as well erase the whiteboard. Basically, what ends up happening, and this is nice because most advisors, agents, accountants, they get this. They have clients dealing with it all the time. They're buying into a company. They're buying stock. Like when they buy into your company, and I don't care if you're listening today as somebody under an IBD, for succession planning purposes, you still probably want to have an LLC or an S-Corp. You know, we have to take care of the contracts and the flow of money from the IBD to you, you to the entity, where you don't have that on the RIA or agent side or tax CPA side. But regardless, once all the money is in the company, well, we're, we're buying 10%, 20%, 1%. I don't care what the percentage is. Like We're buying shares from the founder or units, if it's an LLC, membership interest. And as a result, seller still gets long-term capital gains, you know, assuming they've held it for 12 months or longer, which they pretty much always have. And then you have a buyer who has basis. Exactly what I was thinking. Sounds good. Like the CPA will say, great, you've got all this basis. The other side of that for anybody who's actually lived through this is calling it using after-tax dollars <laughs> to service the debt, which sucks. Oh. However, if again, if we can get creative, we can get proactive with this. We, we've had many instances where we've been able to work with the, I'll say buyer-seller, the founder and the successor, buyer-seller, whatever you want to call them work with them and their tax professionals to actually structure the deal so that we can get back to the benefits that we had in the third-party sale, where the seller still gets capital gains. They're easy to solve for. They get a good tax treatment no matter what. But we can actually give the buyer the ability to write this thing off over time. But again, this is one of those things where on the surface, if you put this deal together with like local counsel, CPA and attorney, you're not going to get there, A, because they're not creative, B, because that's not their job. What you ask the attorney to do is write up a contract for me to sell you 10%, and you're going to pay for that using a banknote. Well, that's CPAs see people buying companies all the time. That's really easy. They know how it's taxed. The goal here is, is there a way to have our cake and eat it too? The short answer is, yeah, if we're proactive with this, we've been able to do this now, I mean a dozen times already this year, and we do it every year for clients. So, you know, it requires being a little creative, rolling up our sleeves and being willing to do a little bit of paperwork and work with the CPA. But it's frankly, you know, Patrice, like that's part of our process is let's get the recipe all figured out. But before we put the cake in the oven, let's bring the outside counsel in and see if we can get a little more, a little bit more creative to optimize this thing. And the nice thing is when you involve the outside professionals who know this business really well, like the tax accountants, all of a sudden adding them to the team, we get to a place where we can start to accomplish things that independently we probably couldn't have done. How much time does it take to put something like this together? In other words, how far ahead should the founder be thinking? Yeah, realistically, I mean, for internal succession planning, I mean, so much of what I described that makes internal succession planning successful 
it's not actually the work that we do. I mean, ours is putting form and structure around what you hopefully have already been doing. So I'll answer it in two parts. If we're talking about just holistically, like creating that farm team of talent, the career path, the job descriptions, the compensation bands for each of these roles, that's something that, I mean, I'd encourage folks to start with now, like start well before you need to, and it will be a lot more manageable. But assuming you're doing those things, you know, reasonably well, or to your standards at least, then the work with us to start executing on something like that on an internal basis, I'd say seven to eight years is kind of the sweet spot. Like more time certainly doesn't hurt. Less time does hurt. At some point, five years or less, we have those happen all the time on succession planning. But it is undoubtedly for a lower value than it should have been to squeeze this deal into that short amount of time. Like it just is. All right. And you you did talk a little bit about the advisor founder who's concerned about giving up control, having a partner. Is there anything you want to add to that? You went into it in some fairly good detail, but I find those stories are probably very interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think when you start thinking about the concerns, I mean, frankly, both the successor, they have their concerns too. Sure. Do I want to take on a million dollars in debt? Like, is this... Is this a business that makes sense to invest in? Like every founder assumes that, you know, the next generation, Gen 2, Gen 3 is going to be beating down my door, just begging me for the opportunity. And I mean, if you build the firm right, then yeah, I mean, they they will see how efficient this business is. They'll see the profits and the lifestyle that it affords you and they will want their turn. They'll want their opportunity to be on that partnership track but it's not by default. So I think really it comes back to just trying to build something that somebody else would want to buy into. Like don't don't assume that they're going to want to buy in just because it's been this cash cow for you. A lot of times we end up starting with the valuation as step one in the succession process and you, you get their P&L and it has to be accompanied by a lot of explanation because basically the business is producing no profits. Hmm. Well, it's a professional service business. Like we know it's producing profits unless something right. really abnormal is happening. But it you know, turns out they pay themselves, you know, most of the compensation because I don't want to be dealing with profit distributions for one reason or another. Like, so I'd say just in general, focus on, on building the business with the mindset that you know, someday you're not going to be here. And I get it. That might not be for 20 years for some of you listening. But still, if you can focus on building a business from day one, that doesn't need you. Like again, early on, I get it. Like phone rings, you answer it. Portfolios need rebalanced. You take care of it. Prospecting, meeting with a client, you take care of it. But over time, if we can be aspiring to try to get you off of that organizational chart and into sort of a C-suite leadership role, even if you don't ever actually get there, the business ends up being so more, it's more efficient. It's more well-run because to train your farm team of talent, and then have those people training their successors, it requires systems and processes. And these things just, they, they make you more valuable. They also just make you more efficient. They make the business a whole lot more enjoyable. So I think all that kind of goes back to the timing and making sure that we have enough people, frankly, in our stable that 
they could afford to take us out. Because frankly, for every one founder, it usually takes two or three successors, honestly, Patrice, from like an affordability <laughs> and duties perspective. Like as the founder, you start by doing, you know, one or two things. By the time you're ready to consider retirement, you're probably doing 20 or 30 things. Half of them you don't really even give a second thought to anymore. But when you really start to itemize that list and you think, well, shoot, how am I going to hand that over to somebody who's never run a business before? You're not. You probably need to be handing it over to like two or three people, which there means we need to have those people ready. <laughs> and there must be some satisfaction in that for them. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That goes back to where I mentioned earlier of sort of painting that future state. What if we could get you to a point where you're a 20% owner and you're working 10 or 15 hours per week and you're making more than you are now? It sounds like a fantasy, but... I mean, that really is, that's succession planning. Like we see these things play out when you fast forward to year seven or eight of the plan, that's exactly where they're at. And the funny thing is where they might've planned to exit at year 10, when we call and check in with them at year nine and year 10, they're coming back to us saying, retire from what? <laughs> and you don't have the next gen saying, get this old guy or get this old gal out of here. Like they're not adding anything. No, they're, they're adding a lot doing the one or two things that they actually really love doing that they can do for 10 or 15 hours per week. And you'd have a heck of a time trying to go find somebody with that skill set, knowledge of this client base and business to work 10 or 15 hours per week. Like it's irreplaceable. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty cool. That was a great wrap up answer. But just in case we haven't touched on a few points, is there any other benefit to internal succession that you can think of that we didn't mention? Yeah, honestly, I mean, I think for me, it comes back to the sustainable growth. Like that, that is something that when you talk about what drives the value of an organization, the off the cuff answers are, well, profitability and growth and recurring revenue, and they're not wrong, but those drive value short-term. What drives revenue long-term is the sustainability of the organization. And that to me is, goes back to building a business that can exist someday independent of you and tying that back to growth, like if the business only grows because of your network, your relationships, your ability to prospect and close, that business has a pretty short lifespan. I mean, everything else being held equal. So as we can start to diversify that, then all of a sudden you see one of two things happen. Either the founder gets to take their foot off the gas, but the firm does not slow down. Pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Or they have these extra people helping put their feet on the gas and we just go faster. Like that's it's that old saying, like nobody washes a rental car. I think we can look at the same thing here. It's how do we get our employees to think and act more like owners? Turns out it's a pretty simple solution. We make them owners, but acknowledging that it doesn't have to be like the full ownership rights you have. We can ease you into this gradually. Start with a phantom equity plan. Maybe we then get them into an ownership stake, but it's non-voting. We'll call it profit interest because it sounds better, but non-voting. And then someday they may get to full equity rights, but we don't have to start there. There's a lot of flexibility and choices if we give ourselves time. All right, now I'm going to put you on the spot. What would you recommend? Internal succession or a third-party sale? I mean, the easy button, 1,000% to get the best value with the least amount of work is the third-party sale. That's... You just decide one day that that's what's going to happen. I don't care if you have a small firm or a big firm. Big firm thinks, well, I don't want to do a third-party sale because I want my staff to stay in place. If you have a very large and successful firm, I don't care what industry it is, 
no buyer is going to go pay millions of dollars to buy your business and then get rid of all the staff, like not in a professional service business, like they're safe. But I would say in general, I, I would do the internal succession planning. Like, is there more value to be had on the outside? I mean, yeah, if you don't start the process early enough, but I think if you start the process early enough, and again, we're talking to an industry full of professional planners. So, you know, we're not really putting you all out. This is what you do for a living. If you start the process early enough, internal succession planning, A, can be more rewarding. B, gives you a lot more control for a heck of a lot longer. And C, you can get the same or more value if you start the process early enough. All right, then. David, how can advisors reach you? So, yeah, as we wrap things up, oh, I also forgot, Patrice, my children, since we dropped this, were listening to the podcast, and all three of them, keep in mind they are eight, six, and five, their one takeaway and comment was, you didn't mention us. So <laughs> I have to wrap up by giving them a shout out for Lincoln, Lillian, and Arlo, since they strangely listened to a succession planning podcast. Uh, alas, I see, I see I succession plans in your future, perhaps. <laughs> I do. So anyway, big shout out to them. But I would also say getting in touch with us. I've said it before, follow us on LinkedIn. We're pretty prolific. Number one, on pushing our content out there and more importantly, highlights of our content. If you don't want to go listen to the whole podcast, for example, you'll see snippets and the good stuff there. Um, also check out our website, successionresource.com. Same thing. You can actually chat with us directly there. Our contact information is there. You can actually even just schedule time to talk to Nikki Rainier and our team. We're always here and happy to help. There's also a phone number for those of you sort of old school and then pick the phone up and talk to somebody. We love to have these conversations. We get it. We know whether you're on the buy side, the sell side, or frankly, somewhere in between, these are very personal, intimate conversations and we're happy to have them with you. All right. Well, follow this podcast listener and listen to the whole thing. <laughs> Don't miss a point. And of course, share it with others, especially those in your business circle. Thanks for being with us. And that concludes another episode of SRG Offscript. We hope you found this episode both interesting and valuable. We encourage you to check out our website at successionresource.com or, of course, connect with us on social for the latest happenings at SRG. If you just can't get enough of SRG Offscript, we invite you to join our monthly Q&A webinar, SRG Offscript Live, where we address your questions sparked by the latest podcast topic. Finally, if you enjoyed today's episode as much as we did recording it, please leave us a review and tell your industry friends about us. Your support helps us continue to bring you the best content possible. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Succession Resource Group. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of an expert with any questions you may have. As always, we at SRG stand ready to help when you're ready.